0: Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News From Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 26, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Scott Bolton joins Julia Rosen to talk about a first look at Jupiter's poles and what we're learning from the Juno mission. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from the Daily News site. This episode is sponsored by Dignity Health, one of the largest healthcare systems in the United States. They recently ran a survey that showed more than 75% of Americans believe individual mindfulness can benefit their community. And if you're a reader of science, you'll know we ran recently a science careers piece on mental health in graduate students. Similar articles have appeared in other publications about burnout in the research community. Just taking two minutes of the day to be more present in your life may benefit you or even the people around you. Share how you're making this a daily habit on social media with the Take Two Men's hashtag. That's take the number two and men's. Visit DignityHealth.org slash Take Two Men's for more mindfulness tips. <laughs> Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up we have a story on a dimming star. I actually saw this on Twitter first. All the astronomers I follow are like, "We need to keep an eye on Tabby Star. It's dimming." Why did this get people so riled up this week, Dave?
1: Well, Sarah, you know it's not Tabby Star. It's KIC 8462852. <laughs> but let's call it Tabby Star just to uh just just for ease. So this is a this is a star 1,300 light-years away, what's really weird about it is it seems to dim at these kind of irregular intervals. Um, And sometimes it dims by like 20%. Sometimes it dims by 3%. And that's led to a bunch of speculation about What exactly is happening with Tabby star?
0: This was an observation. The initial observation was from Kepler in 2011 through 2013. And that's basically the way we detect planets, right? Right. We
1: look at these stars that are very far away and we look for dimming. And the reason we look for that is because when a planet passes in front of its star, that star dims. And that's the way we've inferred uh, the presence of a lot of alien worlds outside of our solar system
0: but there is something unusual about this signal that kepler detected it's it's a variable dimming and it's not the same amount all the time which is not the you know what you'd expect to see with a planet passing every so often and now Kepler isn't facing this area of the sky anymore. So that's why I saw it on Twitter. A bunch of people are helping, right?
1: Right. And some of this new information comes from actually Tennessee State University's Fairborn Observatory in southern Arizona. And scientists have sort of been looking at this star because it's so unusual. And what this observatory saw was a dimming actually in real time. The Kepler data has sort of come like, well, let's search back in the Kepler data and see what we're seeing. But this actually, astronomers saw it when it was happening around May 19th and 20th. It was just last week.
0: They all jumped on board. There's a bunch of different telescopes in play here all pointing at it. And do we know the answer right now?
1: (laughs) Well, there's a few explanations. One is that there's maybe a cloud of dust or maybe dusty comets uh, circling around the star, and that's causing the periodic dimming. Or maybe the planets around it have collided, and that's causing some weird dimming. Or maybe the planets are still forming, and that's causing some weird dimming. Or maybe, Sarah.
0: Okay, here it comes.
1: An alien civilization uh, that lives near that star is building a megastructure. So something very big, maybe a Dyson sphere. This is a really (laughs) huge structure that would actually encapsulate the entire star. Or maybe they're just doing some construction work of some very large (laughs) objects near the star. These are actual theories that people have proposed. There's lots
0: of actual theories out there. There's a lot of actual (laughs) theories. And they
1: haven't necessarily been dismissed outright. So... We've got some possibilities.
0: Okay. Well, I guess we'll see what happens when they crunch the numbers. Right. Now we have a story on sperm in space. Space has a host of dangers to people, cold temps, no air that's breathable, and radiation of the cosmic kind. So that's why we need to bring sperm out to the space station, right, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> well, that,
1: and if we're going to go explore Tabby's star to figure out exactly what the heck is going on over there, we're going to have these really long missions in space, whether we go to Mars or even beyond. And if, especially if one day we want to establish colonies out there, we're going to need a lot of raw material, raw human material, uh, i.e. sperm. But the big question has been, There's so much cosmic radiation in space, and we know cosmic radiation can damage DNA. Sperm is especially sensitive. So if you've got all the sperm stored, even if it's frozen, it's going to be getting hit with this radiation. What's going to happen to the sperm? And more importantly, what's going to happen to any sort of life you try to generate from that sperm?
0: This is an experiment that's now been done. We've sent sperm to space, and since this is not conducted by mad scientists, they started with mouse sperm, and they froze it, brought it out to the International Space Station. How long was it there, and what happened to it when they brought it back?
1: Well, it was there for 288 days, and as the scientists expected, the sperm that were on the station had more fragmented DNA than some control sperm they had uh, from mice that they kept on Earth. But surprisingly, when they inseminated female mice with this quote-unquote damaged sperm, the females gave birth to 73 space pups, which is about as many as they would if they were given normal sperm, and even more importantly, the mice that resulted, um, the, the babi- space pups, the space pups that resulted, were for all intents and purposes, seem very healthy.
0: Here's the but: the ISS is not that far away. Is it really comparable to a trip to Mars or beyond?
1: Experts say it's not. They say <laughs> okay. there is a lot more radiation beyond once we start getting beyond the ISS, uh, which means we're going to need some further studies, maybe in. Deep space, shooting sperm into deep space. How do we get it back? (laughs) Something. Anyways, we're going to need to do some deep space studies of sperm to really confirm uh, that these little guys are going to be okay for long space journeys.
0: Last up, we have a story on the embiggening of whales. (laughs) We don't do a lot of why stories when we talk about evolution, and if we do, there's a lot of Caveats that have to go with that. And this is one of those stories. So, Dave, I'm going to leave that all to you. Why did whales get big?
1: Why did whales get big? Great question, Sarah. Yeah. A question scientists have been asking themselves for years, maybe even <laughs> decades. Uh, we know whales are big. We know, for example, the blue whale is the biggest animal that ever lived, but bigger a- than
0: dinosaurs?
1: Bigger than dinosaurs, okay. the biggest animal that's ever lived. But the question is, you know, we know that whales and dolphins sort of split off around 30 million years ago. Did the embiggening happen around that time? Did all of a sudden we had the kind of shrimpy dolphins, very large whales? Did it happen gradually over time that the, a lot of the whales got bigger? Or was it a very sudden in beginning, <laughs> Okay, that's
0: enough with the in beginning. Um, so these are the theories and researchers then went to the fossil record to see if they could sort out, you know, how they transitioned from, you know, kind of a base cetacean to the giants that we have today. What did they see when they laid these fossils out on a timeline?
1: What they found is the whales didn't get really big early on. And what's more, they didn't get gradually bigger over time. Instead, they became moderately large and then stayed that way for a long time until about 4.5 million years ago when they got super huge.
0: All right, let's hear it. What happened 4.5 million years ago that coincided with this inflation of whales?
1: Well, what happened around the time was there are a lot of ice ages going on and starting. And when this happened, as glaciers were expanding, the spring and summer runoff poured nutrients into the coastal ocean which fueled an explosive growth in krill and small animals that the whales consumed. But until that time, prey had been pretty uniformly distributed across the ocean. And what had hap- what happened about 4.5 million years ago is you had these big patches of prey and then other patches where you didn't have prey. So it really behooved you, if you're feasting on these animals to have a really big mouth, to be able to consume a lot of them at one time, and also be able to have the size and capacity to then travel maybe very long distances to another patch where you would go and do the same thing.
0: As I mentioned at the beginning, we got to say this is a why something happened in evolution story. So we need to kind of say, well, these things coincided, but we can never really know that this happened for the reasons that we think it did.
1: We can travel back in time and check out the whales, Sarah.
0: Is that the Star Trek plot?
1: (laughs) That is.
0: (laughs) Okay. Uh, What else is on the site this week, Dave?
1: Well, Sarah, speaking of a why story, we've got another why story about flamingos, why they are able to sleep standing on one leg. Also a story about why the most dangerous microbes you encounter in a hospital may be the ones you bring with you. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got stories on U.S. President Trump's new budget proposal, what impact that could have on scientific agencies, and how experts are responding. Also, a story about how much Brexit will cost UK researchers. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site.
0: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. We're still getting free transcripts from Scribby.com this week. Please let us know if you find it useful. So a special thanks to Scribby.com. Audio transcription perfected. 75 cents a minute at 99% accuracy. The best deal on the internet for audio transcription.
2: Last July, the Juno spacecraft arrived at Jupiter and started beaming information about the gas giant back to Earth. That information is changing scientists' understanding of Jupiter from its mysterious core to its stunning aurora. I'm Julia Rosen. Scott Bolton, the principal investigator on the Juno mission, is here to explain what scientists are learning from the craft's dispatches. Welcome, Scott.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So what has Juno been up to since it arrived at Jupiter last summer?
3: Juno's been in orbit at Jupiter since last July 4th when it arrived there. The orbits are pretty big. They are 53 and a half days long apiece. So it's only gone around a few times already. But the results from even the first two flybys are just amazing.
2: Yeah, a lot of the images that have come out of this mission are just stunning. For people who haven't seen them yet, can you describe what Jupiter's poles look like?
3: So that's one of the most exciting things that Juno has been able to provide is really our first look at the poles of Jupiter. I mean, no other spacecraft has gone over the poles, and they don't look anything like Jupiter as we know it. We're used to seeing Jupiter sort of from the equator. You see these zones and belts, these beautiful stripes, swirling clouds, you know, incredible colors and Great Red Spot and other big storms. And when you look over the poles, all of those zones and belts are gone. You see this bluish hue to it, and there's tons of these cyclone and anticyclonic storms spinning around the poles. It almost looks like meteor craters, but of course it's all atmosphere. It's all gas. What
2: creates these storms?
3: Well, I think that the processes we assume are a little bit similar to what we have on the Earth. As far as dynamics, you have the sunlight shining and Jupiter's internal temperatures, changing pressure and creating winds, and eventually these storms develop. On Jupiter, the zones and belts are sort of blowing around at different speeds, and they naturally create areas just sort of like we have different areas and regions on the Earth. But the extent that things are going on at Jupiter, this giant planet's atmosphere is very different than ours. And I think we need to work out the details of exactly what creates these kinds of storms at the poles. And we don't really know if they're stable. I mean, are we seeing it in just some temporary setup or is this sort of a stable configuration? And of course, over the course of the mission, we'll be able to watch the poles and see how they evolve. Maybe these cyclones are always there, but maybe they just come and go.
2: You also spotted an unusual 7,000-kilometer-wide cloud. What's the story with that?
3: That one was sort of just a bit of luck. We, of course, go over the poles, and so Jupiter's always half-lit. So you're looking along the Terminator, which is sort of the line between sunlight and dark. You can see shadows very easily. You know, if you were to look up at the moon and you look along the Terminator, you can see the craters because you see shadows. So when we flew over, there happened to be a storm that was right near that terminator. And we could see what appears to be shadows. And so the size of the storm was not that unique, although it is quite large. There are ones that are even larger at Jupiter. But the fact that we saw it near the terminator showed us these shadows and we could see that it was actually sticking up, elevating above the cloud base that you normally would think of. And so it's a towering, almost tornado-like structure. It's a cyclone of some kind, but it's three-dimensional.
2: I understand that Juno has been looking at Jupiter's deep atmosphere, too. What have you found
3: there? So Juno has a new kind of instrument. It's called a microwave radiometer, and it's capable of seeing through the clouds and seeing into the deep atmosphere down to hundreds of bars of pressure. One bar of pressure is what we feel on the Earth at sea level. So we're seeing in hundreds, even a thousand bars of pressure down. We're really looking at the dynamics of the deep atmosphere as well as the composition. We're sensitive to ammonia and water. In our first passes, we're really just looking at the ammonia and we're amazed. We look all across the planet and we see deep down that the ammonia is varying. And this is a new result. We didn't really expect that. There were no models that really predicted any of this. In fact, most scientists have felt that as soon as you go down a little bit into Jupiter, that everything would be well mixed. And we're finding that that's just not true at all. There's structure down deep, but it doesn't seem to match the zones and belts. And so we're still trying to figure it out. Of course, a new instrument, it's hard to understand all the data right away because you don't know exactly what you're looking at and you have no comparison. But it is really exciting, and it's fundamentally changing how we perceive giant planets. They're just not well mixed.
2: In a companion paper led by your colleague, John Connerney, you report that the processes behind the aurora on Jupiter appear to be different than those on Earth. How so?
3: Well, on the Earth, the aurora are largely dictated by the sun. It's the solar-wind interaction with Earth's magnetosphere or magnetic field that creates the aurora. Jupiter's is fundamentally different. We already knew that a little bit in the sense that the oval that is created at the poles moves around with Jupiter as Jupiter spins. There's a part of it that's tied to the solar wind, but a large part of it is tied to Jupiter's rotation. So Juno is the first spacecraft that's actually gone in close to the auroral region and looking down. And so we're seeing the aurora for the first time. Juno's actually got data that's really the first image that we ever had of the southern aurora. We've never been able to see the whole thing. We're also simultaneously making measurements of the magnetic field as well as the charged particles that are causing the aurora as we fly very close to the poles, and we can see that it doesn't work exactly like we expected or as the Earth does. We haven't been able to see particles necessarily going up and down in both directions like we would have expected to cause the aurora, so there's definitely some strange phenomena that we still need to comb through and understand better, and we're at the beginning of the mission, so these first results are sort of telling us Some of our models and ideas are wrong and need to be corrected and we have some ideas of which way to go, but it really takes more data to really test whatever theories we put together and see if they're right.
2: Juno also measured Jupiter's gravity and magnetic field. What can those tell you about its core?
3: Juno's very sensitive, in fact, the orbit is designed in order to create a map of the interior structure and the gravity field tells you a lot about how the interior structure is distributed, the mass how it's rotating inside. One of the key questions we have is, is there a core and how compact is it? And then the magnetic field samples a different region. Deep inside Jupiter, the pressures are so great that the hydrogen, which is what Jupiter is mostly made out of, almost becomes metallic. I mean, it becomes a metallic fluid that conducts. And uh, we believe somewhere in there or right above it, you may be creating the magnetic field from the motions of this metallic hydrogen. And so when you map out the planet and get very detailed information about the magnetic field or the gravity field, you can uncover details about what the core is like, how uh, deep it is, how compact it is. You can learn about the magnetic field structure. So Jupiter really holds these secrets inside of it, and they tell us about how Jupiter formed and how magnetic fields are created in general. And so this is a clue to the very early part of the solar system and how giant planets work, which you're really looking for is evidence of whether there's a core or not, How compact is it distributed? It looks like there's a lot of strange deep motions that possibly are going on inside of Jupiter.
2: How are these results changing our understanding of Jupiter and the solar system?
3: One of the things that's really unique about Jupiter is is that its mass is so large. It really is probably the first planet and really tells you how planets started to get formed. And so our understanding of how giant planets work and how they're built inside is sort of fundamental to how we think solar systems are formed in general, both here in our solar system and the new solar systems that we're discovering now around other stars in the galaxy. And what Juno's results are showing us is that our ideas of giant planets maybe are a little bit oversimplified. They're more complex than we thought. The motions that are going on inside are more complicated. It's possible that they form differently than our simple ideas. And so it really is changing the most fundamental way that we think how solar systems are formed and how giant planets work. And it will take really the complete mission for us to totally understand how the concept of how Jupiter formed impacts our solar system formation itself.
2: So what's next for Juno?
3: What's next for Juno is in early July, on July 11th, we'll fly really close to Jupiter again, and this time we'll be going right over the Great Red Spot. And so this allows allow us to see for the first time how deep the roots are to that great storm and how does it compare with the rest of Jupiter. Maybe we can learn about how it works and why it's there and whether there's a mass underneath it that's driving it. And so it's very exciting to see for the first time how that great red spot really works.
2: Thank you for talking with me today, Scott.
3: It was great fun. Thanks for having me.
2: Scott Bolton and colleagues write about the Juno mission in this week's issue of Science.
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Golbeck, and welcome to this month's book segment of the Science Podcast. For May, we're discussing Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death by Brenna Hassett. She's a bioarchaeologist, founding member of the Trial Blazers Group, and a dentist to ancient teeth. The book takes an archaeological view of how humans became urbanized, and when we talk about urbanization here, we're not necessarily talking about big cities, but more about people transforming from mobile hunter-gathering groups to living in settled places and pursuing agriculture. That, it turns out, affected everything from our diet to social inequality. So, Brenna, thanks for joining us. Can you start us off with the motivation behind the book?
5: All the big changes we've made in the last 15,000 years, we've gone from a way of life hunting and gathering that, you know, that did us just fine for hundreds and thousands of years. And in in just a blink of an eye in sort of evolutionary time, we've upended that to be, you know, a majority urban species. So my big question is, well, what did that do to us? (laughs)
4: Let's start with diet, which was really fascinating to me. You talk about how our understanding of the real paleo diet has improved with new methods that show there were tons of grains and seeds on the menu. You found them in the campsites, in the plaque on people's teeth, and even microscopically. So tell us about what we know about ancient meal plans. Well,
5: I think, you know, uh, people have to kind of step back and realize if you talk about eating what we've evolved to eat. We evolved to not starve to death. What people sort of think of as paleo diet, which is generally, uh, you know, a mammoth that you hunted down for your uh, protein-rich snack, Uh, that might not really reflect the reality. So archaeology is, you know, pretty good at digging up the remains of ancient meals. So we can tell you, you had a lot of stuff like porcupine. And pigeon. And with the advent of real scientific archaeology, where you you can actually drill down to the sort of microscopic level and start finding the tiny cell structures of plants that people were processing 10,000, 20,000 years ago, it turns out uh, the past was full of carbs, (laughs) Carbs everywhere. <laughs> it's, and, you know, it's, it's our, um, you know, it's the continuing evolution of the scientific technique as people push that further and further that really allows us to kind of reshape uh, what turns out to be a pretty, um, you know, inaccurate notion of the past.
4: Now, you're an expert on teeth. You zap them with lasers, you cut them into thin little slices, and it turns out you can discover all kinds of things about people's lives from this.
5: Teeth are absolutely fascinating. Teeth are essentially little fossils that, you know, they grow inside your head and they hold on to information that you can't get any other way. If you think about, you know, you break a bone, eventually it kind of knits back together, you chip a tooth... Well, that's the end of that. That that tooth is chipped. It doesn't grow. So that same uh, basically sort of fossil-like, you know, locked-in-time quality is what allows us to really get at some interesting stuff. So all of the the little chemistry of the, the water you drank, the rocks you lived on, that actually gets locked into your teeth during the time they're growing. So you can find out all sorts of things about how people grew up just by getting very much into their teeth. Teeth form... Uh, From just before you're born and if you happen to get certain types of diseases say an infection like syphilis Your teeth respond by basically not forming correctly. So there's this wonderful quote from a a French dentist He noticed that in all of these babies born to women who were working as prostitutes They had a little half moon notch cut out of those front tube, you know uh, incisors those biting teeth And um, he sort of said in, in his witty French, the teeth of the children actually hide the evil secrets of the mothers and the fathers.
4: Okay, so we can dig up ancient living spaces, we can examine bones and the teeth, and that helps us understand things like diet and disease. But how does that translate into an understanding of the urbanization of humans and the social inequality that arose with it?
5: Many people would identify inequalities as rising up just about the same time that we get properly urban you start to see pretty stark health inequalities. And that's something that actually is a theme that runs all the way through to the modern world. If you look at the WHO website, if you look at, um, you know, sort of modern statistics, health inequalities are still a huge problem for cities. And this is something we can trace back 5,000 years. So the way um, archaeologically you, you might start to recognize this is if, if you think about your um, kind of happy egalitarian lifestyle where everybody's got exactly the same kind of stuff, you'd recognize that in the archaeological record um, by seeing evidence of, say, community eating, you know, big, big open fireplaces in the center of, you know, your, your camp or wherever, where everyone's doing all of their activities together. And then slowly, slowly, you know, we build up a series of little walls and lots of our activities move behind walls. You start seeing people keeping food and stuff behind these walls. That means it's their food, not everyone's food. And that's the thing that gets into our bones. So what we start thinking about in terms of bioarchaeology, in terms of our actual physical bodies, is uh, what happens when you don't get enough food. And that's that actually takes up a, a lot of the book talking about, you know, um, if you don't get enough food, you don't grow very well. You actually end up more prone to disease, more prone uh, to, you know, not surviving to reproduce. So uh, our urban history is a pretty kind of a close run thing where we have a bunch of a bunch of things conspiring to kill us, essentially. And one of the things that inequality really sort of um, maximizes is the opportunity for diseases that take advantage of malnutrition and take advantage of not being very healthy, not being very sort of robust to start with. They, they use that as a spring pad <laughs>
4: to, to wreak havoc on us. For more about the archaeology of human urbanization and its effects, both good and bad, check out Brenna Hassett's new book, Built on Bones. That's it for May. We'd love if you'd share your thoughts with us at the Science Books blog, Books et al., and we'll be back in June with a new book by Alan Alda. Thanks for listening.
0: And that concludes this edition of The Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org, or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.